I want to remind you of the series that we're in. We are in a uh, series that is calling to attention the well-worn path of this ancient faith that we practice. The markers along the way of this Christian life that can remind us that we are actually, yes, we're moving down the right path. What does Christianity look like? Uh, How can I know that I'm moving in the right direction toward a life in Christ, toward this idea of being a fully devoted follower of Christ? And we've said week after week that these are markers that help us to know that we're on the well-worn path toward becoming fully devoted followers of Christ. Uh, I was listening to watching Pastor Jeff's introductory sermon to this series uh, while Brenda and I were on vacation down in Mexico a couple of weeks ago. And uh, when I heard his illustration of the boulder field, remember he talked about climbing a 14er in Colorado and you have this picture of the, in fact, we, I pulled up some of the pictures from his, his message. So that boulder field there, and it looks like it's a pebble field, but when you get closer to and look at it, these are huge boulders. And uh, he brought the illustration of the difference between when you're on a trail, these trail markers, and the difference between a cairn and a duck. We have those slides too, and I pulled those from his uh, message. Go ahead and move through those slides. So that's a duck. And when I heard this illustration, I told Brenda, you've got to come in here and hear this. This illustration is even better than the illustration he gave a couple years ago of pushing the motorcycle down the hill and finding the, you know, getting it revved up and getting going. I don't know if you remember that one or not, but those of us who are preachers, we take note of these things. Illustrations, file that one, that is excellent. This was, don't let it go to your head. Don't let it go there. (laughs) Brendan, you will come here and listen to this. And I rewound it and, and, and Jeff was saying something like this that there are these markers that are in the trail that we've seen that are relatively easy to build, little couple, two or three rocks stacked up. But these are the markers of, he was, I think, just giving us a blanket statement so we can understand the difference between a duck and a cairn. These are the markers that don't take much effort. They're sort of saying, I think this is the way the trail's supposed to go, and I think this is where it is, follow this way. And then contrast that with this next slide, a cairn. And you realize, hey, that took a while to build. There have been countless people who have come down this trail and affirmed the fact this is the trail, this is the well-worn path. There's nothing trivial or quick or easy about this statement. You follow this path where this cairn is, marking this many different saints who have said, go this way, and you're going to be okay. And I loved those illustrations, that big boulder field, and you have that boulder field where, you know, in the background there were these people, and you realize how difficult it would be to even find your way, because everything looks the same, and everything looks like the right way, and everything looks like the wrong way, and there's no way to know whether or not you're actually moving in the right direction. In fact, I can imagine, you know, that some of those places, the rocks are so big, you can't really see where you're supposed to be going, and you lose your sense of direction. And what do you look for? The ducks? or the cairns, and this series is about the cairns of Christian history. We don't mean to say we've always done it that way, so that's why we're doing it this way now. There's some of that kind of nonsense that we've all heard, and we tend toward, we drift toward it. We're saying, in all of that, thousands of years of reflective faith has tried it and failed 
tried it and succeeded, analyzed everything, and when it was all said and done, had a Solomon moment and said, baby, build a stack of rocks here because this is the way we live. And we want to say we are not so arrogant in our modern expressions of faith as to assume that those great saints all had it wrong and we have some new nuance that is right. Neither are we saying there's nothing we contribute. We're, we're thinking, we're creative, we're rethinking, we're always analyzing, always applying, but there are certain cairns along the well-worn path of faith that we need to pay attention to. Not the ducks, the cairns. This series is intended to help us discern the difference between the ducks and the cairns. And of everything I'm reading and everything people are saying and all the different TV preachers I have and all the different the three preachers I have or plus three plus preachers I have at my church, what is actually true and solid and, here's a word for you, proven? How can I know I'm moving toward Christ? There are certain markers on a rather well-used and well-known proven trail. And so we, we've been thinking, this is all rehashing, so nothing new here, which we've already heard for the last few weeks, but you know there's that, that classic uh, list of what's called the seven deadly sins. But there are also, as Pastor Jeff told us and then Pastor Ben uh, reminded us, there are, these, there, there are these seven holy virtues that they don't mean to mitigate the seven deadly sins, but uh, th thinkers have said there are these seven deadly sins, but there are also these seven life-giving virtues, holy virtues, classic Christian virtues that draw the sword on the seven deadly sins. And you have a matched one for one, and we've been working our way through there. And we don't mean to focus on the deadly sin, but we can't neglect that because the seven the virtues we're talking about are in contrast to those seven deadly sins. These virtues really are the markers that we're focusing on. And we're presenting these seven or these holy virtues that have always marked the way to following Jesus. They always have. And so far, we've been introduced to two. To chastity, whether we like it or not, whether it's easy or not, comfortable or not, even popular or not. Jesus would say, hey, the easy way is to go down that trail where the ducks mark the trail. But if you want depth, greatness, true faith, chastity. And then generosity or charity. This idea that, you know, the fastest way for a pastor to make him or herself unpopular with an immature group is to challenge you to give radically of all of your resources. Your money, your time, your heart, your emotions. We, uh, every once in a while, we talk about these kinds of things here. Those who are really crazy serious givers, financially for instance, they tell us, you don't talk about that enough, get on it. Quit wimping out, man, we wanna do some great things. And then there are those who maybe aren't that far down the road, and they'll say, boy, that's a kind of, talking about money an awful lot. <laughs> Here's the way we look at it. 
We think that when we talk about giving, whether it's financial giving, and let's not wimp out about that. We need to do that to do great things in the world. Or the giving of our hearts, or our emotions, or the giving of forgiveness generally, you know, generously. We think we're talking about whether or not we are touching people in the world. To us, to your leaders, for us to challenge you to be generous in all of your resources, with every commodity available to you, that's equal to us saying, let's go bless people. Let's go change things. Let's go do things. Let's go live into the kingdom of God. Let's go make a difference. That's what we think that's about. So we will never stop challenging you to be charitable or to practice chastity or the, the kinds of, uh, in your relationships. Those are some of the cairns along the well-marked path. I try to live in such a way that I can look back at history and, ha and see history, Christian history, looking at the way at least I'm trying to live and the way we're trying to lead a church. I want history, Christian history, to be able to look at Marin Covenant Church and say, yeah, okay, yeah. I do not want to live with the thought that all of the great followers of Christ, the greatest names in Christian history, could look at our church and the way we're doing our very best to follow Jesus. I don't want them looking at me and at us and saying, yeah, no. <laughs> That's just this marvelous fabrication of the faith with nice windows in the building. The great ones of the faith handed a baton to the current ones of the faith. And by God, we're going to live it and live into it and live a life worthy of the lives that have been lived for us. So we're not apologizing for these. These are the great cairns along the great, well-worn trail. And so far, we've dealt with chastity and generosity. And today, we add a third focus. This is a focus that the virtue that resists or does battle against the deadly sin of sloth. And that means something quite different than you might think, this idea of sloth. I have a good friend. He's preached in our fellowship. Uh, I was just with him this last weekend down in Southern California. He's the president of World Impact, Ephraim Smith. I want you to watch this clip by uh, my friend Ephraim Smith because Ephraim actually introduces us to this third virtue in this clip. He's preaching here. It's just a short clip. He's preaching at a Wheaton. Is it Wheaton College or Wheaton University now? He's pre preaching at Wheaton, and he's laying it down at Wheaton. Listen to this. As I close, sisters and brothers, I just came by here to tell you this. I used to have this vision that the church should be a bridge over troubled waters. Ah, but I got a different vision for you, sisters and brothers, today. I think the church shouldn't just be a bridge over troubled water. The church should get into troubled water. The church needs to get in the troubled waters of discrimination. And, and the, the church ought to get in the troubled waters of racism and sexism and arrogance and terrorism and political division. We need to get in troubled waters. Flint, Michigan, water, paralyzed water, left for dead water, the waters of immigration, the waters of mass incarceration, the waters of bitterness and abandonment and neglect. You need to take off your religious shoes and put your Christian foot in the troubled waters of this broken and upside down world. 
Now would you please stand for the benediction? <laughs> yeah. Ephraim. We're going to get him back here to preach again. We were just talking about that down in L.A. Ephraim didn't communicate it this way, but he knows that when he was challenging people to go beyond being a bridge over troubled water to actually jump into those troubled waters, he was calling her back to a well-worn path, this well-worn path of Christianity, and in particular, to find or rediscover the cairn of what I call Christian activism. The opposite of sloth is Christian activism. It's diligence. It's paying attention to the needs of the world, to the message of Jesus, gathering the power of the Holy Spirit, and diving into some of the most polluted waters of humankind. And that, folks, is a part of what is normal and natural for a church and for Christians who are following Jesus. Some of you might be thinking right now, oh, here we go, politicizing again. Look, between us here in the room, there are things that have been politicized, and we try to be very careful not to go there. But there really isn't much that's exclusively political. Racism, that's a biblical issue. Justice for women, that's a biblical issue. The way people are treated and trafficked, those are biblical issues. The correct use of power and wealth, those are gifts we're given to use for the benefit of the kingdom, the agenda of God. Those are biblical issues that, yes, may have been politicized, forcing us to be very careful about the way we communicate them so as not to communicate the wrong thing. But if something is tender to the heart of God and he's involved in it, issues like justice and racism and immigration and the way we treat our neighbors and all of these things that have been categorized as political and you think that if, oh, if the preacher says this, the preacher voted for this. If the preacher says this, the... Those are biblical issues. Why should we surrender them to anybody else? God asks us to get involved with these things and to be activists. He says, put your religious shoes to the side and dip your holy Christian foot into the water. Get in there. Be active. Be busy. That's the cairn we're talking about today. That's where the well-worn trail Leads. That's where the well-worn trail has always led. One of the markers of an authentic Christianity is a sore back. One of the markers of authentic Christianity is dirty hands and blistered feet. Calloused hands. The message is entitled, A Case for Calloused Hands. That follow the activism of Jesus. Jesus did not come and say, I got the doctrines right, I understand what the texts mean, and now I'm going to sit back and believe the right things. He was involved, and we mean to be involved. That's what this word means, to engage with the spiritually hungry toward a life in Christ that's inspired, spirit-led, intelligent, we use our brains, we don't trade them in, and involved. We are 
activists in the name of Christ. Now, this idea of holy virtues, we talk about something that's coming against the deadly sin of sloth. When you think of sloth, you think, yeah, there's the this is the this is the the Puritan. Uh, this you know you work hard. You, uh, what's that phrase? Uh, idle hands are the devil's workshop, or something like that. And we think, well, that's what that's what this means to 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 be activist, to to not uh, yield to the deadly sin of sloth. That means stay busy and work hard and always be busy, never rest. But that's not at all what this means. Let me give you some context for this conversation about the deadly sin of sloth. The challenge to not be involved in sloth, to not practice sloth, was originally a critique of cloistered priests who had become lazy and even indifferent about the practice of things like justice, mercy, and compassion. Sloth is a sin of omission, omitting your responsibilities, and particularly in its context, your religious responsibilities. So this was a challenge to cloistered clergymen who were, okay, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm a priest, but I don't care anymore about feeding the poor, about doing works of Christianity, the good works and making a difference in the my world. In fact, not only had they stopped, to, stopped practicing those things, they had become indifferent toward them. So there's a spiritual, a functional spiritual lethargy that is what sloth is. So then the opposite of that, this activism, this diligence, the idea, the holy virtue is be diligent to love, forgive, care for needs, stand against what is wrong. Everything that is at the top of the list of what God values and the agenda God has for humankind, all of the values of the Sermon on the Mount and the kingdom of God, Christians get busy about doing that stuff, standing for it, arguing for it, practicing it, insisting upon it, make every decision with those kinds of things in mind. And don't be lazy about that, about doing good works, good Christian works. So that's what sloth is, the indifference toward caring for people and practicing toward people what Jesus teaches us. For Chaucer, sloth consists of a person languishing and holding back, refusing to undertake works of goodness because that person tells him or herself the circumstances surrounding the establishment of good are just too grievous, too difficult to suffer. It's too far gone. It's just too hard. Eh. Eat, drink, and be merry, for eventually we go to heaven. The hindrance of a person in his or her righteous undertakings. That's sloth. Aquinas said, sloth is sluggishness of the mind which neglects to being good. It is evil in its effect if it so oppresses people so as to draw them away entirely from good deeds. Good deeds, think Christian deeds. Deeds like Jesus practiced. He goes on to say, it is essentially a flight from the divine that leads to not caring even that one doesn't care anymore. Not caring that you don't care even. Not only do I not care, I don't care that I don't care. That's sloth. So if sloth is essentially the neglect of Christian service in one's community, its opposite is to be jumping straight into the troubled waters 
of what Ephraim calls an upside-down, bizarro world. The well-worn path along the Christian way is the socially active path. That's not just for quote-unquote liberals. That's for followers of Christ. That stack of stones calls out to us to not forget Christian action, Christian service. So we don't just teach about justice and mercy and compassion and truth. We follow the heart of Jesus and we practice justice and mercy and forgiveness and all the things that God values. I don't hold to those things and try to correct my presuppositions about these issues because of my political position. I don't even care to have one of those anymore. This is my Christian position. And that's one of the most ancient pathways of Christianity. A pathway to and a proof of authentic Christian faith. Now, to make my point from Scripture, because that's where the point originates, let me just take you to two people that we need to remember here. And in that context, here, James. James chapter 2. Here's the witness of James and the witness of Jesus. James is that one about whom it's been said he argued faith without works is dead. Faith without works is sloth. Listen to him. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? I have all the right beliefs. I know all the right doctrines. I can recite the catechism, but I don't care about issues that crush people. Can you imagine Jesus not caring about issues that crush people? Remember we just sang about this being Jesus. Arms wide open. Do you think Jesus loved people with whom he disagreed? Well, we don't have to wonder about that. He shows it. What good is faith without deeds? Can such a faith save anybody? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, be well fed, God bless you, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, it's dead. In other words, James is saying, I'm not arguing against faith. He says, that kind of faith is not the faith that finds its way along the path marked by the great ancient cairn of activity, of works. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. You pick your poison. Show me your faith without deeds. I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Got the doctrine all right. You're going to argue. You might even, I mean, we, we launched into this. I mean, you, you read Christian history, Christian history, and the number of people that were strangled and burned and killed over this idea of whether or not they believed in one God or three, and you're going to be rather embarrassed. Get all the doctrine right and have nothing at all in your life that looks like Jesus because we've taken an alternate trail then. He says, you believe that there's one God. Good for you. 
Even the demons believe that, and they shudder over it. Shoot, we believe it and don't shudder. There's very little awe in us as we approach God sometimes. You foolish person, James would say to today. Do you want evidence that faith uh, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Look around you. Activism always has been, is now, always will be a mark of authentic faith. Faith without actions makes about as much sense as love without sacrifice. You live long enough, you realize love and sacrifice, those are synonyms. Love without sacrifice is not authentic love. And faith without actions is not authentic faith. The well-worn path is an action path. Now, James should be good enough, but we also, of course, have the witness of Jesus. This is all over the teachings of Jesus, all over the place. I just picked one from Matthew 25. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Jesus couldn't be any more clear than he is in this parable. And then the king will say to those on his right, the sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance. Here, come, come. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. Measurable action. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. Measurable action. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick. You looked after me. I was in prison, and you brought me meals. You came to visit me. You're the real thing. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or go visit you? What in the world are you talking about? And then Jesus slams the gavel down. The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Oh, how sad it is that the modern church doesn't think like that so often anymore. If you're going to follow me, Jesus says, you're going to go where my heart has always gone, the well-worn path of Christian faith, where ducks don't mark the trail, cairns do, is into the damp and dirty alleyways of human dysfunction and need. That's why the church does everything she can to figure out how to care for folks with AIDS who have been neglected and rejected and thrown away, and the children of those folks who innocently get to experience the byproducts of their parents' condition. 
We can't meet every need. There are way more needs than we could even imagine. But we can meet some. We will not be indifferent. We will not stop challenging Christian people to practice Christianity. Because that's the sin of sloth. And the well-worn path is radically activistic. There are all sorts of ducks marking lesser trails, but the cairns of the ancient road more faithfully traveled are stacked alongside the path of Christian action, exhausting effort, radical involvement. It wasn't just James and Jesus who were arguing this. This stretches throughout the entire narrative narrative of Scripture. And there's a song that I came to love that I learned at the youth conference, Chick, that we send our uh, students to every three or four years. This is years ago. This was sort of the song, the poster child song. And it went, When let justice roll down like a, whatever it was, flowing river, I think is the way they used to sing. It called the, the congregation to stop her lethargy, to put her righteous foot down, to say, to the degree we can be involved, we will choose the well-worn trail of action. There's faith where life is transformed and we find new life in Christ by the decision to invite him to be our leader and to forgive our sins. We yield to you, Lord, come and live in my life I want to follow you. I'm going to do the best I can to follow you. I'm depending upon your Holy Spirit's power to change me and equip me to do all the things I dream of. And I'm even dependent upon you to give me new dreams I haven't dreamt yet about myself and the way you can use me and the person I am revealed to me, my frailty and my shortcoming and my sin. Teach me to die to myself, all of that. But there's also this way of life of the Christian. You know what? We do that instead of that because we're following Jesus to that, to there. James was right. What good is a faith that has no action? It's just little more than a concept. But the ancient path, the well-worn path that reminds us, yep, we're moving toward being fully devoted followers of Jesus invites us to make every decision to hold every thought captive to what Christ taught what the ancients proved and call us to listen to the text of the prophets Amos 5 I hate I despise your religious festivals your assemblies or God is speaking to his people, are a stench to me. A stench to you. We just got through singing about your wide open arms and that your Lord, Jesus is Lord. I'm holding my nose. I can't stand the smell of it. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Take them back home. 
Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away, listen, away with the noise of your songs and beautiful harmonies. It's noise to me. I will not listen to the music of your harps. And then this. But, instead of all that, God offers us something that will be a beautiful harmony to him, that he will be blessed by, that he will listen to. Let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. That's God saying, listen here now. Remove your religious shoes. Think not of simply being a bridge over troubled water. It's not a bad thing, just not the main thing. Remove your religious shoes and dip your Christian feet into the troubled waters of human perversity and need. When Jesus says, follow me into this, whatever this is, the response of the well-worn path is always yes. Yes.